Hey guys. Oh, there we go. You guys know how to do it. Give me that thumbs up. Let me know that the audio is working. I appreciate it. We're going to give it a couple of minutes. I think I, I checked into the queue here just a little bit early. Uh, and we're going to try something a little bit different this cycle. Uh, this cycle, I'm already thinking like a campaign, uh, like we're in campaign mode here. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different this evening because I'm hoping to get as much um, from you about what you guys want the topic to be as opposed to me kind of uh, say, uh, telling you a little bit more about what I'm thinking about. And the reason is because I know I've been absent a little bit, but um, a lot of you guys wrote and said, hey, you know, what do you think of all of these topics? Are you going to do a show again soon? And I really didn't have one planned, but I thought if I don't do one uh, tonight, it's probably going to be another few weeks before I do. So um, if you have questions, go ahead and throw them in the chat. Um, and if you don't, then um, then I guess I'll just kind of pontificate the, the way that I do. I know, uh, I, I know at least a handful of you guys uh, are okay are okay with that, uh, which is a little bit, uh, you know, I, I feel um, honored that uh, Mike Madrid's musings are worthy of your playing this stuff probably in the background while you're um, doing something else, something far more important. But before we get uh, too deep into that, I think we're probably about ready to go. Oh, we're still a little bit early. Let me say um, the topics that I have to be talked about that people have requested today is they want to talk about Trump's numbers, the movement that they've seen over the past few weeks. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about, uh, we'll throw DeSantis in there too, just because I think people are interested in it, only because the media keeps fueling this a little bit. Uh, we should probably talk about the CNN Town Hall if you guys want to. Um, I, I thought it was a little bit silly, but we can, we can, we can do that. I know that there's some really strong, passionate feelings about, uh, the CNN town hall. So we can talk about that if you guys want to, um, if you don't, that would be great too. I know that I have very different opinions on this than most do, and I'm more than happy to explore why. Um, most importantly, because the CNN town hall, and again, we can jump into this if you guys want to. You guys can either say talk about it, Mike, or move on to something more interesting. But the, the CNN town hall did was damaging Trump. It wasn't helping him. Okay, there's, it was it was not helping him at all. And I know that there's were a lot of you know um, influencers, whatever that means, on social media who were basically saying this is a, this is how dare CNN. How dare we actually have a discussion? How dare there be a Republican audience that, you know, clap for him or whatever, whatever. I, it, it just kind of absurd. It was just very, we've gotten very reactionary in this country for very understandable reasons, but it's times like that you've got to step back and be sober about the approach of what you're saying and what you're not saying. Um, because otherwise, if you don't, um, you run the risk of, of, of imposing a, uh, your own set of, of uh, uh, and I don't mean to overstate this, but you, you run this, the, the, the risk of imposing your own form of totalitarianism. It's a form of social pressure that is designed to shut conversation down. It's not, you know, um, what, what is it called? It's not the, the, the what about is it's not the false, the false equivalency that everybody talks about. This is um, this is going to be the nominee of one of the major parties in this country. 
there's nothing wrong with 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 um, hearing from that, no matter what it is. In fact, the worse it is, the more it should be amplified because it should scare the shit out of people. And, it, and if it's not scaring people, then that's even worse. So let's let's accuse ourselves of this silly notion that somehow. <laughs> I'm laughing at the chat box. I'll get to that in a second too. You guys follow me way too closely on Twitter, but I appreciate it. I love it. I appreciate that 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 support. Um, but let, let, let me so let me start with that, uh, Lisa, uh, talking about grandmother's potato olays. I look. I've never heard of Taco John's. I, I just never have. I grew up in Southern California. Um, I think I'm pretty. Um, I think I can be considered an expert in Mexican cuisine, considering. That was the diet I was raised on. I'm from California. Um, apparently, a company called Taco John's, which owns a, many, many dozens, I don't know if it's hundreds, but many, many dozens of, of outlets, uh, has the trademark for Taco Tuesday and Taco Bell, which is also, by the way, not Mexican food, um, is, is suing Taco John's uh, over the use of the term Taco Tuesday and who can and who can't use it. And it, to me, it's the height of parody that we have Taco Bell suing Taco John's um, about whether or not they can use Taco Tuesday uh, in, in some of their marketing programs. Um, I, I just, I just it, it, it just, it's just so emblematic of our era and our times. It's, it's, we, we, you know, people have the legal right to trademark these commonly used terms. Taco John apparently, John, Taco John's. Taco, let me say it again, Taco John's, a chain, I think a Midwest chain, which of course it is, of course it is, owns the trademark to talk the term Taco Tuesday. Taco Bell is pissed and is saying that that's not right. And so we're, the shit we fight about in this country is just remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. Taco John's in the Hispanic hotbed of Iowa. There you go. Taco, Taco John's in Iowa. And potato olays is what they sell as a side, which is borderline, I'm not going to say offensive because it's overly used, but my God, come on. Uh, potato olays. So I, somebody had, had I, I was, I was going off on a little riff on this during a writing break and I, I saw this pop up and I was like, Taco, Taco John's, right? And, and, and somebody wrote, friend of the show wrote, uh, I, you know, I, I love Taco John's. I sometimes I'll drive 40 miles to get some of their potato olays, which I guess is the term that they use for like these tater tots. Like, I mean, that's what I think they are. I, I, I don't know what the hell they are, but I, I, I jokingly said, uh, yeah, just like my Nana used to make, right? Like potato olays. I don't even know what the hell that is, but it's, it's very American. Very cute. Thank you, uh, moderator. Just posted the Taco John's menu. So while you're listening to me rant about whatever political items uh, I'm ranting about, feel free to take a look at Taco John's menu. Share with me any of well, what might be your favorites, and if you are a Taco John aficionado, go ahead and, and uh, you know let's give let's go ahead and give them a review here on Mic Drop, free free uh, advertising platform, and whether or not they should be able to use Taco Tuesday. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. Sorry, now we're a little bit late. Trying to keep this tight at the 5.30 hour. Uh, mic drop here, uh, 8.30 p. 
p.m. Eastern, 5.30 p.m. Western. Like to do this every Wednesday. Don't know how uh, regular it's going to be. I'm going to be uh, off doing some interesting stuff in Mike Madrid land for a few uh, weeks, so I will be gone. Won't be doing this for a little bit of time, but I guarantee you that when I do get back, the silliness of our political season uh, will still be here. None of the problems will be solved, and so there will be absolutely plenty of, uh, of items to talk about, and we will uh, go ahead and, and jump into those. Truth of the matter is, guys, of the last three or four election cycles, and I'm going to knock on wood here, this is sizing up to be a rather, um, I would argue, uneventful political environment, okay? Very, very rare that this happens. But there seems to be a very strong settling of, of uh, the respective uh, party bases and the movements uh, with those few swing voters that we talk about um, seem to be uh, defining a pattern. OK, now, does that mean that I know who's going to win? No, of course not. I don't know who the nominees will be, but I've got a pretty good sense of who they're going to be. And again, we are a very, very long way out of this election cycle to put this in, in context. If you look at the 2020 election cycle, at this point in time, a year and a half out, we haven't even had the first impeachment hearings yet, okay? So a lot is going to change. Uh, my strong sense is it's not going to be good news for Donald Trump. Sorry, I'm fighting off a sneeze here. It's not going to be good news for Donald Trump because he's going to get to more legal jeopardy. This does not hurt him in the Republican base. does not hurt him in the Republican primary. Hold on. Trying to fight this sneeze back. Does not hurt him in the Republican Party, does not hurt him once the Republican base, doesn't weaken him at all. In fact, it strengthens his position, but severely hampers him with independent voters. And I would argue, I would suggest it probably also catalyzes and energizes the Democratic base and rallies that base behind Biden. Now, we can talk about this Kennedy thing. You're probably seeing some early polls. There's probably some, you know, lighting your hair on fire or Wedding, what, what, who was the Obama advisor, political guy that would, uh, was it Pfeiffer, who would talk about his own base saying the wedding to bed, a bunch of bedwetters, Democrats getting scared and nervous. I mean, I can kind of see what he was talking about now. The, the, the Democratic base, the Democratic base voter is a lot more jittery than the average Republican voter. Okay. Uh, it is one of the peculiar anomalies of, of uh, politics. I've seen it up close on both sides. There's absolutely a discernible difference. I'm not going to say what's better or worse. I mean, as political professionals, we have to just shut out all the noise because people are going to criticize us for whatever we're going to do. People are going to hate us for whatever we're going to do, or they're going to mythologize us and put us on a pedestal for whatever, whatever we're going to do. You can't be focused on that. You cannot listen to the noise. It will drive you crazy. It will make you make very, very bad decisions. Uh, I think there's some fun to it, some color to it, but usually the best political consultants are kind of feeding the base and talking those narratives. David Pluff, thank you, Peg. It's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's best saved until after uh, the November elections because um, you, should be, you shouldn't have enough time to be communicating directly to your base voter unless something very serious is happening. You just kind of lock in, put your, your war goggles on, put your helmet on, get your shielded sword, and you march down the field and you focus, focus, focus. If you're not paying attention, you're not doing yourself, your party, your candidate uh, any favors. 
So, uh, are there any questions before we get started, or do you guys want to just jump into the Trump stuff? Let's jump into the one quick second. Do a five count. There we go. Someone in the queue. Gene, thanks for starting us off. Thanks for breaking the ice here. Go ahead and unmute and ask away. There you are. There I am. Okay. Yeah. Love to hear your thoughts on Turkey. I feel like everybody's everybody's been talking about Trump forever. No offense, you, your topics are your choice and your, and your order's your choice, but boy, love to get another place to look. Yeah, thanks for that question. This is really, really important. And uh, again, I spent a little bit of time um, talking about this um, because Thailand had their elections uh, on, on you know, Tuesday as well, earlier in the week as well. And um, Thailand, for the first time in a long time, moved away from a military regime and towards a more pro-democracy stance. I think these are really, really important. Uh, I'm not going to say my first instinct when I heard Erdogan was going to come in below 50%. A couple of my former data guys uh, from the Lincoln Project were, were tweeting back and forth. And somebody said, should we go? The runoffs are going to be later this month. And... My first instinct was, we got to go, got to go to Turkey. We got to go help out. And then I, I thought better of it and thought, no, I, I don't have to go. Um, I, 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 I need to, to rein in those, those impulses. Um, here's, here's where I think the environment is. First of all, after, you know, Erdogan has been the most dominant pol political figure for at least two decades in, um, in, in, in Turkey's modern history. He came to power really redefining what a politician was. He was not kind of of this elite class of people. He, he's a Muslim, which in, in a Turkey used to be very secular and was proud of that. Uh, it was one of the, 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 the secular Muslim nations. And um, I think as he, as he hung around in power more and he, as, as support often wanes for longtime politicians, he recognized instinctively that he needed to kind of lean into that religious element to keep popular support amongst his base. Okay. In many ways, Erdogan is really kind of a, a modern, this has been going on for, for, for millennia. Okay. This is not a new thing that politicians have done, but, but in the modern era, and I mean, in the, this last century, by the way, sorry, Mike Madrid, you know, side, side trip here. We're 24, 25 years into this century, right? I, I'm still used to saying this new century. We're a quarter way done with a century. Like, I mean, I'm not going to see the end of this century, but it's kind of wild to think about it. Like, we're, we're, we're deep in now, right? It's not like the beginnings and trying to figure it out. Like, we're deep into this, this, this millennium. Anyway, set that, set that aside. Sorry. Erdogan really defines in the last 20 years a politician who taps into popular sentiments based on religion and it overcomes and overthrows and upsets the democratic small d democracy order. Okay. Democracy for the better part of 200 years has often or largely been run by elites. It absolutely has in this country, contrary to popular opinion, uh, that and Trump's rise kind of spoke to overthrowing 
popular opinion as it or conventional wisdom as it related to who actually runs our democracy, right? There's been a whole body of thought about elitism and the need to have elites. And, and frankly, our, our, our three uh, branches of government and all the filters that the founders developed uh, were, were all based on keeping only elites in charge. They were the only ones that they trusted with the power of something like democracy. And Erdogan comes in, right, 20 years ago, and he, he basically upsets the apple cart. He does it uh, as the mayor of Istanbul, but in a very kind of diplomatic way. He didn't come in as the fire-breathing right-wing nationalist, pro-Muslim authoritarian that he has become. He's basically degenerated into that. I'm going to use that term specifically because I, I don't think it's progress. I think it's degenerating into the way human beings have typically organized society. He's devolved. He's devolved into this because he's had to continually shore up support after 20 plus years of being in power. One of the curious things about Erdogan is uh, the, the, the major earthquake that just happened really was the second earthquake that happened. The first one was 20 years ago and in large part helped his ascendancy into power because of scandal. And that scandal was people realized how shoddy and poorly built a lot of their homes and edifices and commercial buildings were. Major collapses, massive amounts of death. Erdogan actually runs against that, right? Saying this is corruption, we need to get rid of it. What we found in this 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 uh, earthquake just a few months ago, exact same thing, corruptions, bribes, cutting corners, government bureaucrats on the payroll taking money to allow developers to not do what they needed to do to build uh, things uh, right construct in construction. And that creates a backlash. It would be the height of irony if Erdogan comes to power uh, as somebody who rooted out corruption based on a large earthquake and then ultimately is brought down by it. But again, a little bit of a, too much of a, perhaps maybe of a side note there. Most importantly is Erdogan keeps under 50%, right? Which is by the slimmest of margins. I think it's 1% or less. Okay, the, the numbers I was looking for was like, what's going to come in from the rural areas? Because that's where Erdogan's going to do best. That's where his biggest base of support is. It seems like for the moment that he's going to keep that number under, or that, that, that Turkish voters are going to keep that number under 40%. Now, there are three candidates, okay? And the question now becomes, can the opposition unite uh, the other candidate, the other major candidate, get like 45%. And then there's another candidate got that like 5%. The problem as I see it, and there's a big heated discussion between me and a bunch of my data guys on this, was does that 5%, that small opposition number, move to Erdogan or does it move to the opposition? My, my gut tells me most of it moves to Erdogan. Uh, because of the ideology, because of the construct of, of, of that third-party candidacy. This is very different than, for example, what we saw in Brazil. So when I went to Brazil last September, when Bolsonaro and Lula were battling it out, uh, Bolsonaro was not only not going to get the 50%, he, he couldn't break through about a 44% threshold. Lula was sitting at about the same range, but there were two other, at least two other candidates in the field, actually a few more, and those candidates um, were anti-Bolsonaro candidates. So I felt very comfortable not engaging further uh, with some of the folks I was working on in Brazil, because even though there was a runoff and it became about Lula and Bolsonaro after that first round of elections, 
it was clear that 90% plus of the vote that was outstanding from the minor parties were going to break towards Lula and against Bolsonaro. Okay, that, that is not what's happening in Turkey. It's not what I see in Turkey. Okay, now I could be wrong, and I hope I am wrong. But the, whereas in Brazil, all of that anti-authoritarian, anti-Bolsonaro, anti-right wing sentiment broke towards Lula, very important, not for Lula, but broke against Bolsonaro, very important distinction, okay? Those third party candidates voted against them. In Turkey, the third party candidate who got 5% is really much more ideologically, more pro-Muslim, uh, a little more fasci, that the right, can we use that term now, fascist -y? What's the right fascist adjacent? Uh, you know, looks a lot more like Erdogan than, than the opposition candidate. So I don't, I, I don't think that um, the the challenge candidate name escapes me. Maybe somebody can help me with that. Throw it in the chat. The candidate who got 44, 45 percent of the vote in the Turkish elections. To me, I, I the way I view these is again negative partisanship works. I was actually talking to a campaign in, in, in Ecuador. I shouldn't go into too much detail about it. But we're talking about voter opinion and how it's possible to run campaigns in other countries. And the answer really is if you can understand and define where, where people are at and formulate their opinion based off of what they're against as opposed to what they're for, you're going to be able to mobilize uh, voters against a candidacy or campaign. And so really setting the frame of what you're against is far more important than uh, what we're for. Most campaigns in the United States, by the way, still haven't realized that. You still watch these bio spots that come out and Tim Scott or Nick Haley or Nikki Haley do all this stuff. They're, they're really not defining their their opposition point strong enough. Again, sorry about the, 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 the meandering. Bottom line is uh, Turkish opposition, I think, breaks more towards Erdogan than against him. Kernal killed, that's why I didn't remember the name. There's the, if anybody can pronounce that, jump up into the queue and you get a, a free order of potato olays from Taco John's this Wednesday only. I will go ahead and purchase the order for you, but you better be right on the pronunciation. Okay. So I, I, I'm, I'm unfortunately, I'm not hopeful because I do believe that the if, if Erdogan were to lose, it would be probably a very, I don't want to say a, a mortal wound, um, but it would be a, 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 a incalculable setback for global authoritarianism. That's how important Erdogan is, okay? He was more important than uh, Bolsonaro, and Bolsonaro was very important. He was arguably more important than Trump. Uh, they're a NATO member, by the way, okay? NATO member, Turkey's in NATO, and we're a little squishy early on. You'll probably remember when the Russians were doing what Russians do. I have a strong sense is that tension between Muslims and Christians is the only thing that was standing in the way between Erdogan basically bolting from NATO and backing Russia and saying, it's Russian land, go ahead and roll on the Ukrainians, we'll do what we can from our side on the West to, to, to help buttress your efforts. So I don't know if I've gone on too long about that. My concern is what to watch for, what to look for then, is to really keep an eye on that third party candidate and what he does. If that third party candidate, again, I think he got five, six percent of the vote, four and a half, five and a half percent of the vote. If he supports Erdogan, I think it's game over. Erdogan wins probably 53, 47, something in that range. Not terribly close. And again, that that sounds close. It's that's not really that close in, in, in elections, but it's 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 something that needs to be um, 
uh, you know, kept in mind. I, I, I think, I think, unfortunately, Erdogan probably survives. I think there's probably a stronger pro-democracy sentiment that gathers steam, seeing not just Erdogan coming this close. It's not, it's not as close as it should be. But when 47% of the people are basically voting against a fascist authoritarian regime, that, and this is important, that has been as popular and powerful as Erdogan has been for 20 years, you better pay attention. The political elite's going to be paying attention. I'm not convinced that another leader comes in after Erdogan and continues down the road the march towards authoritarianism without huge social upheaval. I think, like many dictators, he's got a, a certain particular power uh, and spell he can kind of cast over his people that is not transferable. So uh, runoff is in May, uh, end of May. It's coming up in the next few weeks uh, really quickly. If you're following Turkey, and you should be, keep your eyes on that third-party candidate because where that candidate goes will probably determine who the next uh, leader of Turkey is going to be with pretty significant geopolitical uh, um, impacts. And I would argue... Um, Probably, probably um, the one would be authoritarian who um, uh, is not only kind of quasi-Western, but is 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 still um, holding on to power through democratic means through an election through, through elections, um, even though he has scoriated the press. The free press basically doesn't exist in Turkey anymore, and it's basically becoming a Muslim the theocratic state. Uh, Turkey is always fast. I've never been to Turkey. It's always fascinated me. Always fascinated me. Two two spots in the world really fascinated me. You know, Spain because it's on the Iberian Peninsula, and and the mix between North African cultures and power systems and the Wests have always fought over that little strip of land right there in Gibraltar. And the other is Istanbul uh, because East and West meet there as well. And that city has gone back and forth between Western and Eastern interests for thousands and thousands of years. And that conflict um, has has created really a remarkably amazingly rich culture, but a remarkably amazingly rich history. And I think those two spots still tell us a lot about, about um, human human nature. So yeah, North African power systems, their debut album. I think the first album came out in the 80s, by the way. 1580s, if you're paying attention. So, okay, any other questions? Gene, did, uh, did you have anything else that you wanted to ask? And does anybody else want to hop into the queue? No, thanks. I'm good. Did that answer it as, much as, as well as I could? Oh, good. Well, good. Great minds think alike. So let's talk about Trump a little bit then, too, if we might. But um, let's not spend too much time on Trump because Trump, I mean, there's been a lot of Trump to be talking about. And I am very concerned about um, what I have realized in doing this and having these conversations with you all for, for many years, and it really came to light with the CNN stuff, is how it triggers this real fear. Um, and I'm not saying it shouldn't remind us, but it can be very debilitating, right, to the point where people are like, we need to not listen to him, ostracize him, shut him down, um, it really conflates, I think, the fear uh, and, the, and the, the reach that he has. Now, I may come to rue the day that I say that because he, he may be reelected. And I'm not saying he's not going to be. I'm saying the chances are very unlikely. The chances of him winning election, I think, are, are more unlikely 
uh, this year than they were in 2016, and I think they're much more li less likely than they were in 2020. Okay, um, but and not not just because of where he's at now, which is not a particularly strong range, but where he's heading. Okay, now as I've shared on the show and shared with you all long before this was popular, I was telling you guys that DeSantis's base levels of support not that sticky. They're not that strong. Can I get a thumbs up just so people can, can affirm that I was saying that? You guys let me know, right? I, I've been saying that for a long time, because DeSantis is not that strong. It's going back to February when DeSantis was like, there's a couple weird polls showing DeSantis ahead of Trump and stuff like that. DeSantis's base levels of support are not that strong, okay? Now, can that change? Yes, but that's not where it's at right now. We could talk again about what it would take to change that. I think chances of that are very, very small. Even if Trump is indicted, if he's if he's if he's if he's perp walked into you know Georgia's court system or or DC's court system, which is coming next, any of these things that that stand a 50-50 maybe better chance of happening, I don't think that they erode his base levels of support. Okay. Um and, and that's scary enough because we're dealing with a social dynamic, but it also that understanding should also help you realize and recognize what we're dealing with in terms of a social phenomenon that is manifesting politically and why it doesn't operate under the normal political um, behaviors that we would expect at this time in the race. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Chicago. I was meeting with a bunch of reporters who were going to be covering the presidential race. There was this really fascinating, it wasn't that fascinating. It was a really involved discussion about DeSantis and I think he's going to announce in the middle of June, June 12, and what that means. Should he be announced earlier? Should he announce later? Guess to me, Mike, what do you think? And I was like, this is an academic discussion. There's no lane for this guy. And it's just, it was troubling to hear reporters talking about this because there's no data, there's no evidence suggesting that there is a lane. Could one open up? Yes, there could. Elaine could open up. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I could catch a unicorn tomorrow, right? And find a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow tomorrow, too. I mean, I could. It, it's not likely, but, but I guess I could. And talking in those hypotheticals, I think, is part of the problem of the way we communicate with people who don't understand the science behind elections. Because the range at which people are actually moving at this moment in American history is so narrow, it's so tight, that we're not going to see these dramatic swings in public opinion, no matter what happens. It doesn't matter. It does not matter what, 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 what uh, Biden's health is like is not changing anybody's opinions. There's, there's almost nobody that is like, oh, yeah, if, if Joe Biden were to get really sick, lose the capacity to walk or talk, they're not going to just vote for Trump all of a sudden. Like, it doesn't matter. If Trump goes to jail, real possibility. It's not gonna, people aren't going to be like, oh, okay, I'll vote for Biden. Like, I know that's shocking, but you know that by now. You know that. You've heard enough of people, not just me, but it's true. There's no swinginess in our elections because we view our elections right now as an existential moment. And what that means is it's all or nothing. 
It means it's the end of your viewpoint and your way of life and what you believe your country is. And if you lose elections, even small, nominal, sometimes local elections, you feel like it's a, a threat to your worldview if you lose. If you win, it's an affirmation of that. So our politics are very, it, it's not unique. It has happened in American history before. You heard me talk about the age of acrimony between 1865 and 1915. There have been uh, the Vietnam War uh, time during the Vietnam War uh, exhibited many of the same tendencies. There's this heightened sense of threat, okay? There's heightened sense of threat, and that is going to mean a couple of things. Talked about this before, too. Higher turnout elections on the natural. We saw that in the 2018 midterms. We saw that in the 2022 midterms. We saw that in the 2020 elections, okay? We're going to see it again. We're going to see record turnout in 2024. All of the polls are saying, I don't want Trump. I don't want Biden. I don't want this to happen again. That's true. None of these guys are particularly popular, but, and this is really, 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 really important. It's really important if you don't get the point. Doesn't matter how popular your candidate is, it's how much your base detests, is frightened by, or hates the opposition. That is all that matters. That is the only metric. So there's this strong overemphasis on favorabilities on both sides, by the way, okay? The metrics you should be looking at, if you're going to start looking at polling and you've heard me, you've heard me warn against doing this because it's just going to scare the shit out of you. If you don't know what you're looking at, you're just going to, you're, you're going to naturally gravitate to bad news. And we're getting to that point in the election cycle where a lot of new polls are going to start coming out. People can be like, oh, oh my God, this one shows up Trump up by 12. Oh my God, this one shows DeSantis beating Biden by 10 points. Mike, what does that mean? That's not what you said. Blah, 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 blah. Okay? That's going to happen. I, like, I've, I've gotten myself used to the, these kind of questions now, too. So I'm, I'm going to say it now. I've said this in the 2020 cycle. And I said it in the 2022 midterms. If you're watching the polls daily, you're going to lose sleep. Your blood pressure is going to go up. And you're going to start getting anxiety attacks. Okay? Fine. I'm not saying don't do it because y'all aren't going to listen to me anyway. You're going to do it because they're addicting. Okay. So what I'm saying is take other precautions for some self-care out there while you're doing it. Go for walks, hydrate, drink a little bit of water, like eat better food. Okay. So while you're putting all this bad stuff into your brain, do something else. And here's why. And, and, and understand this as a political professional, we don't watch the polls like everybody else does because they're essentially meaningless in the construct of an actual campaign. Polling that's done publicly is designed to show us what the quote-unquote horse race looks like. Who's ahead? Who's behind? And there's so much wrong with approaching a campaign that way, a race like that, if you're actually running the campaign. And it's truly not telling you much except it's giving you that dopamine hit when you're getting it to freak you out or make you scared or make you happy. And I guarantee you, once you see one poll, you're going to start scrolling, doom scrolling, to find another poll to either counter it or reaffirm it, right? I'm starting to see some thumbs going up because that's what you all do, okay? And, and, and I get it. I understand why. But what I'm telling you is if I'm running a campaign, I'm not doing that. 
because what I know how to do is construct a survey instrument, a poll, to give me the data that I actually need. And it's not horse race data. That, that doesn't tell me anything. What I'm looking for is the key voter segments that I need to build to match up to get my candidate to 50% plus one or to, or, or to get a, you know, a plurality, to get more votes than the opposition. That's, that's the goal, okay? That's not going to be done on a poll with 454 likely voters from Echelon or some online polling outfit that started up yesterday with some crazy-ass name that is trying to get a bunch of, you know, likes and retweets on Twitter. Like, that's not the way this works, okay? So you have to be very careful. And if you guys want, I'll go into more polling detail again. I did it in the 2020 cycle, then the 2018 cycle, which is why I know you guys are going to keep looking at it. You're going to keep freaking out. You're going to keep asking questions. And I'm just saying, I, I, the reason why I'm saying don't do it now is so that I can say I told you so and reference this moment in 60, 90, 120 days because you're all going to do it. And it's going to scare the shit out of you. And that's why you're doing it. You're getting addicted to this fear of, of, of what's, what could possibly happen. It's you're revisiting all that trauma. That's literally what you're doing. So the best thing you can do, best thing you can do for yourself and for your mental health is to cancel your, your cable subscription now. Get rid of it, okay? There's nothing Rachel Maddow is going to tell you that's going to make you feel better. Trust me. She's going to say something that's going to scare the shit out of you, and it's going to make you tune back in later. Okay? That's her job. And the same thing that what that Fox do does and Newsmax does. It's all geared towards making you frightened or making you angry. Those are two very addictive behaviors that we have as human beings. This is biological. Everything from the way the Chiron is set up to the screen and the colors how they have spent millions of dollars focus grouping that to make sure that it is as addicting as possible to prevent you from leaving that screen, okay? That's what they're doing. Incidentally, and I know this is off topic, but we don't really have a topic tonight. This is why Twitter became as powerful as it did. For those of you that are really cracked out and saw that the ratings after the CNN town hall was surpassed by Newsmax, look at the day part. Okay, look at the day part. What that means is how many viewers were looking at that rating. Here's the number. 355,000 people were watching CNN or Newsmax, one or the other. It was surpassed by like 10,000 people um, by the by uh, Newsmax got, let's say, 355. That means CNN got 345,000. That's it. That's it. Okay, that's not a huge swath of people. This is not like it was back in the 1980s when you're watching Walter Cronkite and half the damn country is watching and talking, giving him the news. That means 350,000, give or, give or plus or minus, are watching CNN. Why is that important, Mike? Why do you bring that up? I'm going to tell you why it's really important. How many Twitter influencers do you have with over a million followers? Probably quite a few. Okay, you start getting up into all of that. You start getting up into the million range, and suddenly the viewers on these influencers becomes extremely important to the cable news shows. If my day part on CNN is three hundred not fifty-five thousand people, and somebody else has over a million people, 
I want that person on my show because they're going to be tweeting about it and driving eyeballs to their audience. That's how Donald Trump manipulated the cable news cycle, and it created a self-perpetuating cycle, okay? This, incidentally, is what the Lincoln Project did in flipping that over on its head. You get eight people with enough social media following doing the same damn thing with the same technique but providing more regular content, you can actually beat back the guy who redefined that model, redefined that mode. That's what cable news is. It's why there's this seamless interaction. It's why they put our Twitter handles on the Chiron. Because a lot of us want, and I'm going to do CNN, I think, what's today? Wednesday, Friday night, Thursday, tomorrow night, I will be uh, doing Alyssa uh, Camarota show on CNN. They'll put my Twitter handle on the Chiron because they'll want me to tweet it out. And that's the, that's the, the, the terms of the deal, is they want eyeballs watching that show because it helps their their ratings. That's what this is, guys. That's how this works. That's how Trump was able to manipulate it, and that's how uh, groups like the Lincoln Project were able to beat him at his own game, okay? Now, I don't exactly know why I brought that up, but that's what I, I, I um, what the hell was I talking about? I got way off topic there, sorry. I, there's somebody else in the queue. David, I'm gonna bring David up. And I'm going to take a little bit of water while he's asking his questions. Go ahead and unmute, David. Can you hear me? I can. Oh, oh great. Hey, first of all, I, there was a video there about how a potato lay is made. But uh, <laughs> Thank you for that. You're welcome. I'll do a real topic. Um, one thing I've been looking at, and I don't know if I've, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I mean, the whole change of... Um, the demographics obviously is in the uh, red, uh, blue direction here. And even the Republicans back in 2012 identified that in the uh, in, in that report that, you know, 12, that they put out. The autopsy. About, I'm sorry, what? The autopsy, 2012 autopsy. autopsy. You know, so they have to uh, enlarge their base. And, of course, it was thrown out. Right. And then I went, you know what, the way Trump did it is – even after that, he went and enlarged the base. So he, he basically went after the crazies, the anti-Semites, the uh, uh, white supremacists, the Nazis, and were able to complete, you know, a, something that he could actually win with. And a lot of the Republicans are now, they have to have that group. Is that a reasonable thought or? Yeah, I mean, yes. Let, let me let me try to characterize it slightly differently and explain your point uh, a little bit better. So, in, in 2012, um, the Republicans, when Mitt Romney loses, they conduct what has come to be known as the Republican autopsy. They got some of their best brains together, and basically, it said what I was advising the Republican Party in '98 and 2000, 12 years, 12, 14 years earlier which you need to broaden the base of the party because of the demographic change that is coming. You're not getting the production that you need anymore from purely white constituencies, right? The white middle class is shrinking. Uh, the, the white vote itself is shrinking. Um, sorry, we're getting a little bit of feedback there, David. Don't leave the queue because we might have some follow-up questions, but I'm just going to stop the background noise. Uh, America is changing. Things are changing. And... Um, actually was in a documentary, a PBS documentary called Race 2012, 
kind of a double entendre there. It was race, like a campaign race, but also race, race and ethnicity on PBS, race 2012. If you get a chance and are interested in watching the change of the way the parties were looking at race and the way campaigns approached race uh, in 2012, just 10, 12 years ago, take a look at that, okay? I look a lot younger, uh, but uh, saying a lot of the same exact thematics, okay? So in 2012, what happens is these the, the, the political consultants, the data geeks, the math nerds, and the campaign pros all sit together. They come up with what they call the Republican autopsy, and they come to the conclusion that David just said, which was the Republican Party's got to do better with young people, with non-white people, and with people, you know, LGBTQ plus people. It's just math, okay? Trump comes in and flips the coffee table up, and he's like, bullshit, let me show you how to do this. If I over over consolidate white voters to a greater degree, we don't need all those other voters. And he was kind of right. Remember, we say he was right because he won, but he lost the popular vote in 2016 by then the largest margin in, in, in the country's history. So what Donald Trump proved is was the opposite of what every political consultant, when you go to political consulting school, I'm just kidding, there isn't one, but one of the first things that you always learn about your mindset on a campaign is you you win by addition. And that means you have to always be thinking in terms of your campaign by adding more votes. Well, with an electoral college, Donald Trump proved you can literally win by subtraction. What does that mean? Because he literally won by subtraction. What it meant was if he could so polarize white Christian voters against everybody else, there were enough white Christian voters in enough of the right states to win the Electoral College, even though he lost the popular vote by a large margin. And what he does is he essentially proves the, the nerds like me wrong. Nobody ever thought you could get that kind of production from the consolidation of white voters. But Trump does. The 2016 election reminds me very, very much of the 1994 gubernatorial election in California. I'll be writing a book on this, but spent way too many days of late going through these comparisons because they're eerily similar. But what happens in both instances is the Republican candidate running against illegal immigration and with strong anti-Latino sentiment brings over a lot of white independents and white Democrats and overperforms, as we would call it, all of the models by getting the highest share of the white vote in, in history. He beats Reagan's numbers in 84. It's a big moment, okay? He basically does what nobody really thought was possible, but more importantly, he was doing something that nobody ever had the gall to even try if they even thought of it. Like, who would try to do that, right? But this guy's shameless, and he does it, and he overperforms. Now, here's the problem with that thinking, David. There's two major problems. The first is math. And the math is because the white share of the vote is so markedly older that you're literally losing voters to the graveyard while the non-white constituencies are producing more and more 18-year-olds registering to vote every year. So even though it worked that one time in 2016, you have to keep putting it on overdrive to get even more whites to perform that way. The other alternative is when you can't get any more whites to move over, which they're not anymore, Trump calcified them, 
you have to find, and here's the second point, you have to find new voters. Now, one of the most remarkable things about American politics that we don't talk about too much is not just you know the fact that Joe Biden got 77 million votes and Donald Trump got 70 million votes. It's that there's still like another 100 million people that didn't vote. A massive amount of people, tens of millions of people just did not vote. And what Trump did was trying to do was he was trying to find voters from that don't show up and vote, don't care. They're all a bunch of you know crooks and, and idiots and they're the same party people that don't vote to be compelled enough to go and show up for him. Now, he was successful. He was overperforming most of the models that the polling was showing. Okay, remember, there was a scary moment for a lot of people, not myself, by the way, if you watch the Lincoln Project documentary, I'm saying this is gonna happen, but people that weren't paying attention or didn't know were going, this race is a lot closer than it should be. Trump is winning North Carolina by bigger margins than he should. Florida's over earlier than it should be. What the hell is going on is, oh my God, is 2016 gonna happen all over again? What he was doing was he was overperforming with white voters again, okay, again. And that really freaked people out. Now, here's the, here's the, here's the peculiar thing about Donald Trump. Nobody else has ever been able to do that. In the 2018 elections, when his name was not on the ballot, even though he was president, he was trying to get people out to support the Republican Congress in the midterms, and they didn't show up. He tried to do it kind of in the special elections with with Ossoff, uh, in the Ossoff special election, they didn't show up. He tried to do it in the 2022 midterms, most recently last November. Guess what? They didn't show up. So that magic power he has is not transferable, even when he's the one saying do it. He and his name on the ballot is all that they will support. And so when you look at polls, and this is important, not everybody asks this question because that's not what public polls exist for, but a good metric of what you need to look at in polling for those polls that do is do you support Donald Trump more than the Republican Party or the Republican Party more than Donald Trump? Very important question, and here's why. If that number stays over 20%, the Republican Party is completely fucked. Completely fucked. Sorry about the language. I know it's a family show, but that's the only word I can use to describe it. And here's why. Because those people will bolt and he will bolt if he doesn't win the nomination. Okay? If 5% leave, the GOP is screwed. We showed that with the Bannon line, right? We got 5% of Republicans to move away from, from Donald Trump and vote for Joe Biden. That's what the whole Lincoln Project strategy was. Worked. If Trump goes to jail and a bunch of Republicans bail on him, it won't happen. But let's say it does. Let's say DeSantis, Mike Madrid's wrong and DeSantis catches fire and Trump's in jail somewhere in Georgia and, and DeSantis is like the guy in waiting and everyone consolidates, 80% of them consolidate behind him and they all you know say, okay, well, DeSantis is the guy, right? But Trump is in jail and saying, no, bullshit, I'm the nominee. These guys are, you know, uh, deep state lying. I won the election last time. They threw me in jail because I was going to win this time, which, of course, he's going to do, right? Tell me I'm wrong. That's exactly what he's going to do. And and 20% of them stick with him. What happens to the Republican Party? Right? It's like George Wallace in 68. That's how Nixon wins. 
right? You, you can't win. The Republican Party cannot win if that sizable segment of the base breaks off. So at this point in time, and look, things will likely change, but at this point in time, it's why I said at the beginning of the show, this, the, the fundamentals of this race are as strong for an incumbent as I have seen since 1996 when Bill Clinton beat the crap out of Bob Dole. They just are. The fundamentals are really solid. Now, can it change? Yes. Can, can Joe Biden and the Democrats completely screw it up? Yeah, I think they could. I haven't seen any signs of that, by the way. You'll also recall people have been following the show in the 2022 midterms when everyone's like, why is he at Independence Hall? Why is he using the term MAGA Republicans? Why is he using these red lights and this eerie background and scaring the shit about and attacking the Republicans? Why isn't he talking about Dobbs? And I said, it's brilliant. He knows whoever it is, because I don't think it was him, is his people were telling him exactly the right thing to do. And you know what? It was because he was speaking exactly to the key demographic he needed to move. He wasn't speaking to 95% of everybody else. He was speaking to independents and college-educated Republican women, the Lincoln Project voters. He was talking to them with the same motivating issue that they knew from polling would work. That's all he was talking to. Just that 5% of the electorate. Why wasn't he talking to 95% of everybody else? Mike, if all the voters are out there, if there's tens of millions of voters out there, the answer is because those guys are not swing voters. They're not moving. They'll vote for a dead guy on either side. If their candidate died 30 days before the election, they'd vote for the dead guy rather than vote for Donald Trump. Tell me I'm wrong. If Joe Biden died, God rest his soul, and I'm not saying I hope it happens, but if, if Joe Biden died a week before the election, tell me you would wake up and go, oh, you know what? I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. Guy's dead. No. No. And let me tell you something. You don't know anybody who would do that either. You'd be more motivated to go vote for him, okay? Republicans are no different. That's why they're following this guy like lemmings over the cliff. Why? Because as much as they are concerned about Donald Trump, and it's not all of them, but it's a lot of them, they don't like Joe Biden and they hate the Democrats that much. The same way you all hate Donald Trump and hate the Republicans that much. That's the story of America heading into the 2024 election. There's not any undecided voters. And those that are so small, you damn well better be polling and researching really, really good to find out who those folks are. That's why you don't pay attention to public polling. Because the campaigns aren't looking at it. It doesn't matter. It's meaningless. It's not meaningless. It's largely meaningless. Okay? There is some data to be extracted from it. And what's the best thing to use for those of you sitting in the front of the class who've been hearing me talk about this for four years? What should you be looking for in the polls right now? I'm not going to answer it. I'll come back in a minute. You should be throwing it in the chat right now. And again, I will give you a free order of Taco John's. What are they called? Potato Olays. Okay, so David, I hope that answered the question. I don't even remember what the question was. Movement, Kevin, a winner. Jump up on stage. All you should be looking for, Kevin, A-plus student. He's a guy in the right in the front row, okay? All you should be looking for in the polls is movement. That's what I said when DeSantis and Trump were polling in that same range. I was like, all you're looking for is who has upward trajectory. Doesn't matter whether he's up 5, 6, 8, 10, 15, 20. Is Trump going down or is he moving up? The numbers don't matter. You're looking for the direction. And that's what was telling me that DeSantis has hit a ceiling. His ceiling of support is sitting in the mid-low 20s range. Okay? You got to look for movement. That's all that the polls are telling you, these public-facing polls. And they're important. But they're impo important from that perspective. Nothing else. 
nothing else. And so when I start to see, you know, Trump gets, what's the right term? He's held liable for sexual assault and his numbers start moving up. What does that tell me? It's not that he's pulling ahead in the horse race, although he is, he was never behind. What it means is the vote base is consolidating to where it's truly genuinely at. DeSantis writes a freaking book, right? A national book tour goes to the Reagan library, right? Like the, the Mecca of American conservatism and, and kneels at the altar of Reaganism and goes on this mega tour to tout his book. And what happens by the end of the tour? His polling numbers go down. What's that a sign of? It means that his base is not secure. So I'm sorry, I'm beating a dead horse now, but that's what you need to be looking at, right? Is you need to be looking at movement right now. That's all you should be looking at. And that's where the, the polling averages will start to tell you something over the next six to eight months. But, and here's another problem with the polling averages, and this is a new phenomenon. It's why when Republicans started flooding the zone with all these shit polls, what it did was it stabilized the range. So after about five or six months, guys, the polling averages don't move. There's too many data points. Follow? When you throw so many things in, basically what you have is a reflection of the entire country, which is it doesn't move. It's not telling you anything. All these reasons and more are why you should not be driving yourself crazy watching the public polls. They're going to do nothing but give you a freaking heart attack. All right? Sorry, I don't know if, uh, if I don't know if I'm making sense here, or if I'm going a little bit nuts. But Stephen, you're up on stage. Go ahead and unmute and let me know what you're thinking, and tell me if I'm making any sense here. Actually, you are making sense. Um, it's can you hear me? I yeah. can hear you. Can you hear me? Um, you are making sense. Okay. Yes, I can hear you. It's it's called momentum, okay, and it's called timing. Timing and presentation, you know, is 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 what politics is all about and uh totally agree that uh DeSantis um he's not ready for prime time and I said this months ago to people and you know of course people would say well you know he's good guy and all that I'm like nobody knows who the guy is and to be quite frank he's not even likable and you know I don't care what anybody says uh if, if the candidate isn't likable, I don't care how damn smart he is. I don't give a damn how politically correct or, or you know, if he's right on 100% of the issues. If people don't like you, they ain't voting for you, okay? That's all there is to it. So, so you know, yeah. he's toast. I don't see I don't, I don't, I don't see anybody else in the Republican. I'm not going to say he's toast. And I also, it's also not momentum. Don't misunderstand well, me. It's not, it's not momentum. What we're trying to do is find the trajectory of a true base of support. And that's what the movement tells us. Momentum would suggest that you're building. Well, support. that's, that's a, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Mo momentum would suggest that you're building. That's a good support. point. Yeah. What I'm saying is building support is really a false notion when people are as partisanized and calcified as they currently are. I don't think DeSantis is is toast. I don't think anybody's dead in this business. But I think he has some really, really significant fundamental hurdles to overcome that he's not likely to. Okay? Look, we don't know what the reaction to be when, when all okay. this, when this, when this wall of ceiling of bricks falls in on Donald Trump legally. Okay? 
it's going to take a very strong base of support for people to hold and not bail on the guy. Okay. Now, I think he can withstand it. Well, here's. Go ahead. Yes, he can. And I'll tell you why. Because it's simple. The Democrats didn't choreograph, okay, which which problems they were going to land on Trump's head. And basically the first two one the first two that have hit, you know, people are going, What the hell? He's guilty for a thirty year old rape with no evidence? I mean, people are going and and especially that brag thing, it's like even Democrat, you know, um Democrats are saying on the Alvin Bragg thing, they're saying this this dog won't hunt. So it's like, as of this point, for the few people, and I say few because I'm going to say 90% of the voters aren't really paying attention to the presidential race right now. But, you know, for the few voters that are paying attention, they're like, this is nuts. This is crazy. So, but the bottom line is, is, and I've got an opinion about the Democrat race, and I'll, uh, I'll try to keep it short. But the bottom line is this, and you can. This is an easy question. This is you can hit this one out of the park. How many presidential contests? How many contested presidential primaries has Joe Biden ever won? How many contested primaries? Has Joe Biden ever won? One. You mean nope. state, primary, state primaries? They pulled the rug out from there. I'm not yeah. sure he never, he's never won a primary or a caucus. Huh? I'm not sure what you're asking. He won the primary in 2020. No, no. What I'm saying is a contested primary to where he had a real candidate that was going out there and trying to knock his head off. By the time South Carolina came around, all Democrats had dropped out. Now, in 2020, he had he was he he should have been dead okay. in the water. He was absolutely was absolutely a contested primary. He right. He, I will say this: he was it near last. It wasn't just South yep. Carolina. It wasn't just South Carolina. It was also COVID, because Bernie Sanders was not going to get out of that race. Okay, COVID made it impossible to continue the campaign. If you look at when lockdown started and Joe Biden won that that race in South Carolina, it was within two weeks. So that's that's just not that's not the case. Joe Biden. Joe Joe Biden was going to lose that primary. Go ahead. Joe Biden was going to lose that primary. Yes. Right. When South Carolina came, there were still. Yes. Okay, so I'm not too sure what what the point is, but let's. Let's wrap up with a question and let's move on. Well, the point is, is, here's what I'm saying. Yeah, real quick, basically it boils down to this. They had already made their deals, and they all decided to get behind Joe Biden before the end of the South Carolina primary. They quit in the middle of the primary. And why? so Joe let came into first why. place. That plus, uh, what's his name? Let me ask you why. Why did they huh? do that? Do you remember why they did that? Why yeah, did, Obama I, made a bunch of phone calls and made a bunch of deals. No, no. Pete Buttigieg. They, they were afraid. That, they were afraid that Bernie would get. That's exactly right. They were afraid that Bernie Sanders was going to win. Right. The you know why? Because he was gonna win the primary. <laughs> Bernie no. Sanders. Bernie Sanders matches. Yeah, right. <laughs> Bernie Sanders matches 
Bernie Sanders matches the average Democratic voter better than uh, Joe Biden does. That's a very important point to understand. Okay. And so I, I'm not too sure where we were going with this, but, but, okay. And so I, I'm not too sure where we were going with this, but, but, but Biden, the, the strength of partisan ties cannot be overstated. It's really important to understand how significant that is when we are trying to make, to trying to do analysis of where things are headed. It's why people are consistently wrong in saying Trump is over, Trump is toast because of the sexual assault or this craziness of this last week. All these people applauding on, applauding on CNN are going to convince people to vote for Trump. CNN are going to convince people to vote for Trump. This is, that is the most ridiculously elementary, absurd thing I've ever heard, let alone this late into understanding how people hate Trump or love Trump. No, nobody was nobody was convinced by that. Nor should anybody be afraid of having the eventual nominee of any one of the major parties on any network, especially in a primary when that should have been Republican voters. People needed to be reminded that those are where Republican-based voters are at. You may not like it, and it may scare the shit out of you, and if it does, good, because it should. But to shut that down, to quiet debate, it's frankly, that's as un-American as the fascist shit you see on, from the MAGA Republicans and the Trump shit. It's horrible. And I'm, I'm bothered by people who... Who are, who are perpetuating this and feeding this and fear-mongering it by saying this is completely bothered by people who, who, are, who are perpetuating this and feeding this and fear-mongering it by saying this is completely inappropriate. CNN is an attack on democracy. It's fucking nonsense. It's the exact opposite. There's nothing wrong, however wacko the guy is. The, the fact that he is as wacko as he is is exactly why you want to give him a megaphone. If you think that that's going away simply because CNN isn't covering it, you missed sixth grade civics class. You don't know what you're talking about. And you, not you, you're talking about, and you, not you, Stephen, but you as a person with that opinion are the real danger to democracy. Because that's literally not what democracy is. Like by definition, you're behaving exactly like what you are being critical of. That's what scares me in today's political environment, incidentally. Okay, here's where I'm probably going to lose a lot more people. And you know what? I, that's fine. But to, people on the left don't realize how much their behavior mirrors people on the right. Okay, uh, throw the false equivalency shit at me all you want. Call me whatever the what about is and all the shit that you want. I, I really don't care. I don't care. But I have seen I'm one of the handful of people. There are probably five. Dowd, McKinnon, myself that have operated at the highest levels of these campaigns on both sides of the aisle and throw my work with the Lincoln Project in the middle there that can show and tell you quantifiably that voter behavior on both sides of the aisle is quantifiably, that voter behavior on both sides of the aisle is virtually identical, okay? Virtually identical, okay? It's virtually identical. As much as you hate and fear Republicans because they're a threat to democracy, there is a Republican doppelganger that hates and fears you because you're a threat to democracy as they perceive it. Not going to convince either of you, okay? 
not going to convince either of you guys that somehow that there's some sort of policy decision that somebody's going to operate and behave on that's going to change either of your opinions. And I will tell you what, here's the ugly secret of campaigns. I ain't going to spend a nickel talking to you because you're wasting my time. You're going to show up anyway and vote for who you're going to vote for. And that's 95% of the American public. It's why we don't look at polls that are public facing. They don't tell us a damn thing. They don't tell us anything. Okay. So let's talk real quick about some of the local elections that happened. <coughs> Peg, you brought up race in Florida. Uh, Colorado, I guess, had one too. Look, I mean, obviously you want to win those races and pick them up. They're very significant Republican cities. Having said that, it's kind of like the midterms, right? When Yunkin wins the governorship of Virginia, what, what did that end up telling us? Did that tell us anything? Did that tell us that Republicans were going to win in the midterms? Well, if, if that's what you subscribe to, you were 100% wrong. Look, I, I don't try to read too much into the tea leaves. And, and, and they're important uh, indicators. They they're tell us about some broader trajectories. The truth of the matter is, as, as somebody who studies demographics, I'm more interested in the fact that there were Republicans of any large cities still remaining. That's that's the shocking thing to me. Like urban core, urban centers is where Democrats have been flocking uh, for the past 20 years in really dramatic fashion. So it's not that it's not that the Democrats beat the Republicans in a partisan sense. It's that there were Democrats there in the first uh, Republicans there in the first place is kind of what's what's shocking to me. Is this part of that broader realignment? Maybe, maybe not. But look, I would caution you very strongly against reading anything into that, okay? This is what feeds what we call conventional wisdom. And the funny thing about conventional wisdom is 90% of the time, it's just dead wrong, okay? We always make this big hullabaloo about the Virginia and the New Jersey races in that window right after the presidential election and before the midterms. And you know what? Nine times out of 10, it's wrong. It was this time, okay? It, it, it's wrong. And it's because we need, as political junkies, we need to kind of feed this fix that we've got. And it's just not the way political professionals look at races. We use it to spin the media narrative. We'll do that all day long because we know that people don't understand it. So, of course, the Democrats are going to be like, look, you know, this is the first time in 30 years in this Republican city or this is the first time this has ever happened and blah, 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 blah. I mean, I guess it's it's good communications work. That's good media work. You should be doing that if you're on a political campaign. But what does it mean for the upcoming presidential election? Absolutely nothing. No one's going to remember it a month from now. It tells us literally nothing. But it's, you know, I guess it's a good victory for Democrats who are trying to, you know, beat Republicans. That's what they should be doing. So um, I don't mean to dismiss it, but it's also not, it's not, um, don't don't be looking for indicators like that. It's kind of like it's kind of like looking at you know pig entrails, right? Or reading tea leaves instead of looking at hard data and evidence. There's enough hard data and evidence and fundamentals to show the trajectory of where these things are going. There's a lot of it, right? Main one being the opposition's negatives, far more a bigger indicator than, than people's approval ratings. We just live on this, you know, these outmoded data concepts where, you know, a lot of these journalists kind of came of age when that's the way that you looked at races. Races are just, they're, 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 this stuff is actually very easy. I guess I, I, it's easy for me to say easy. I've been looking at this stuff for 10 hours a day for the past 30 years. So I guess it's easy, but, and, and doing races, but 
when you understand it, a lot of this stuff is really quite clear. Now, again, I'm not always right, um, but I'm right a lot. I've got to admit, I'm, I'm, I'm right a lot, right? And the reason is because I'm not trying to make these horse race predictions. Like, I'm not in that business. I'm in the business of reading data sets and looking at the information the right way. And as much as we think there's all this swinginess and all this movement and who, which candidate would you rather go have a beer with? And, and, you know, oh, they passed this law back when they were a congressman or a governor and that matters for this. Like, that's not, that's not, it's like in Moneyball. Remember when, remember that great scene in Moneyball when you guys have all, hopefully, if you haven't seen Moneyball, go watch it right now. It's just, I mean, after the show, but watch it tonight. It's just, it's, 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 it's when, the, the, the art and the romance of baseball was basically consumed by the science of data and statistics. And there's that great scene where Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, is in the room with all of the scouts and they're a bunch of old-timer, old-timer dudes. And they'd be like, you know, what do you think of this kid? And he's like, well, he's got a beautiful girlfriend, so he's got good confidence. And he's, you know, all we need to do is get his mom in to talk to him about his swing and, 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 and the young, you know, Ivy league data nerds are like, none of this even, what are you talking about? Like none of this is quantifiable. There's so much that we talk about as pundits, as political journalists, the proliferation of cable news, the explosion of social media, that 90% of what is talked about is not the way campaigns look at campaigns it just kind of feeds this kind of frenzy that people have worked themselves into and gotten addicted to. Incidentally, and I'll say this too, jump into the queue if you guys have any questions. Our voice is starting to go, which means it's probably been an hour, right? There's a whole world on Twitter of political scientists, and they're kind of fascinating because they do some interesting stuff, but if you follow them, they, they, they always come up with a new map. Always, they're always doing these maps of what would have happened here, what would have happened there. And these people speak really authoritatively. Like, oh, if this would have happened, then, you know, the Democrats would have picked up eight other seats. Or if, if people looked at this county this way, then this would have happened. And not a single freaking one of them, not one of them, has ever run a campaign. Not one. They, 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 they wouldn't know a campaign if it came up and smacked them in the face. Okay. But they're, they're experts in their own weird, like, Twitter universe because they, they, they bought the Tableau software and are dumping data in. And they build up these weird followings. And, and rarely do reporters get suckered into it. But they do sometimes. And they'll call and say, well, what does that mean? And the, the problem with data, and it's not just a political problem, but it is a big part of the political world, is there's so much data and so much information in our world now that the true expertise is understanding which data is important, okay? Most of these data guys, as we say amongst professional political consultants, they can tell you anything politically, all the data, all the information about any congressional district in the country, except for one thing. They can't tell you who's gonna win because they don't understand the way data is prioritized and which data sets are important and which are not. So a lot of this started with Nate Silver, but there's this whole cadre of PhDs and, and doctoral candidates who are putting out all this math and stuff. And I, I got to tell you, I follow it. It's like this, this, this guilty pleasure I have because I'm like, this, this stuff is fascinating. It's interesting to look at. But 
then I have to pull myself out and go like, this is just, this is, this is based on just complete crap. This is nonsense. These guys, I don't know. It's all ac truly academic in the truest sense of the word. Not one of these people has ever run a campaign, nor would I ever entrust a single one of them to run my campaign because they're not campaign professionals. They're data nerds. And there's a big difference. Okay. Politics is both an art and a science, but as long as, human beings will be involved, and that's what democracy is, it will always be, to me, it will always be more art than science. And I say that as somebody who loves, loves the science, loves the data of politics, because it tells me so much of what is happening to people in our society. It tells me so much about what's happening to our, our country, to, to, to America, to the republic. Data tells us so much, but there are so few people that genuinely understand the intersection between the art form of a campaign and the science of political data. And if you can understand and interpret those, it becomes much clearer on what is truly actually happening. And you're not gonna get that from Republican operatives and you're not gonna get that from Democratic operatives because they wear their party labels. It's where their money, their title, their prestige, their everything else is vested in. You know, I shed that, I don't, I don't care anymore. And, you know, there's a tight, small group of us. I'm not trying to build a large following and become a celebrity political consultant that, that has literally zero interest in, 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 for me. I just I don't I don't relish that at all. But where I can provide some understanding to, to do and explain things from my perspective and from that experience, um, I'm more than more than happy to kind of share that and convey that. So. Um, thanks for joining. We've been on for about an hour and 15. I'm going to cut it short here because I'm starting to lose my voice. I appreciate you. I'm going to be gone for a few weeks on a cool, epic journey. I will share with you the details when I return. Um, but keep in mind, most of the stuff that we're talking about right now that seems extraordinarily important, you're going to forget and have five or six more different crises by the time we do the next mic drop. Remember that because it's going to be a bumpy year, but you have it completely within your control and capacity to smooth most of that out by simply checking out and not following it as closely. It's good for your mental health. Follow the fundamentals. It's going to tell you 90% of what you need to know. And until then, we will talk to you all later. Thanks.